Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter at trunchblepod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. What are we talking about in September, Matt? What do we always talk about in September? (laughs) Well, as, as it always is in September, it's back to school. But this year, despite our introduction saying that we do one picture book and one chapter book, which is what we usually do, we're going to mix that up a bit for this one, aren't we? Mm. We're going to talk about the school story as a genre, and we're going to talk about a handful of fictional schools in children's books that we've read about. They're all chapter books, I think, this time, because we're talking about the specific, you know, like going away to school and staying there. So there's going to be magic schools, there's going to be boarding schools, fine British tradition of being whisked away to a boarding school to to learn to be a magician. <laughs> or, you know, just part of the ruling class. Well, yeah, I mean, what's the difference, right? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that part of the issue? I'm sure we'll get into this. But <laughs> Do you enjoy a school story, Matt? I do. I do enjoy a school story. And I I think partly because I do hold a kind of fascination with the boarding school Mm. thing. Because I didn't go to boarding school. I went to a comp. I went to University of Nottingham, which is a bit of an airs and graces red brick university. So they had like a sort of college system. I lived in self-catered accommodation because I was very adamant that I wanted to look after myself and I wasn't going to engage in this silly nonsense of everyone eating at the same time and all the rest of it. I think you're hitting on something interesting here though is that like most British people who go to comprehensive schools do not get that boarding school experience until they go to university. I dropped out and came back so in my second first year thinking oh actually it would have been maybe it would have been quite nice just to Mm. spend a year pretending I was in a boarding school and getting all my meals cooked for us and why was I so insistent (laughs) but yeah it was this tantalizing little glimpse so I do that there is a bit there of me that is fascinated by that world and and I don't know how much of that is like it's invented by these books like things like harry potter present this view and of this world yeah everybody waiting for their hogwarts letter exactly and so cozy and everyone gathered around the open fire to open their christmas presents so yeah there is there is an appeal it's Mm. this it feels like such a culturally weighty thing yeah it's It's very British, I think, that idea about schooling and public schools especially and the whole, like, mythos around them and that they're sort of a lifestyle more than they're an education. That collegiate sort of, you know, like, you're in a little world of your own in these beautiful buildings with these, like, very strict hierarchies. Yeah. Now, you did board, didn't you, Nina? Yeah. So I also... um, 
read Harry Potter when I was very young and was very enchanted by the idea of Hogwarts. But then I did board twice. Right. Once I went when I was 11. And that was really, really, really bad. Mm. I was too young. My younger sister also went and boarded when she was 11 and she had a great time. So, like, some 11-year-olds are ready. I think probably mm. most of them are not. Um, mm. And I was not, and I was... So, I mean, it's different in France. So, in France, there are boarding comprehensive schools. Which is where you grew up, for anyone who hasn't yeah. listened previously. And, yeah, um, Mina grew so up in France. It's not. It wasn't like a public school in the sense that you would have here. So, for a start, you don't stay all term. You go home every weekend. So that's right. a bit different. Um, yeah. And also, going to boarding school in France doesn't imply that you're posh. It implies you're trouble. <laughs> right. So it's like, what? It's where parents send, send kids the children that they don't, don't want to, deal to deal with. Yes. Like the, the impl- <laughs> like, the idea that you're a boarder in France is like, oh, it's like you're in a sort of like mini version of prison. Were you trouble, were you, Nina? Somewhat. Not at this <laughs> age. Um, okay. But the second time I went away, yes, it was technically because I had been expelled from my previous school. Eee, right, okay. Um, so the first time I went, it was awful. The bullying was really, really, really bad. The homesickness was awful. I was completely, completely miserable until my mum forcibly pulled me out of there. Would not recommend. But then mm. I got expelled from my normal comprehensive school when I was 15 um, and I was doing German and Italian and the system in France is if your local comprehensive school doesn't offer the subjects that you want to study you're entitled to go and board somewhere that offers them and you will get that cheap. Okay that's that is quite egalitarian that's quite it is. sort of that's, yeah. yeah that's quite progressive isn't it it is well boarding in france is much more normal uh in comprehensive schools and it's usually because your parents don't want to deal with you or because <laughs> the subject you want to study isn't taught where you live right or quite a lot of people i knew it was because they didn't their parents moved and they didn't want to change school so they had been a day pupil and then the parents moved and they wanted to stay so they became boarders that's quite interesting as well yeah because i suppose that is again that's quite a good option to have at that age yeah and at 15, 16, it was really good for me. Hmm. Like, it was nothing like Hogwarts. Absolutely nothing like Hogwarts. Nowhere near as glamorous. Much more like being in a prison. So it is living with your friends. Uh, hmm. For me, it was living with my boyfriend, even. Although Ooh. we were not allowed in each other's dormitories. Um, hmm. It was cool for me at that age to be away from my parents. You know, I yeah. was ready for that. I shared a bedroom with... Two girls who were all right. There's very little privacy, I will say. Mm, um, mm. You know, it was communal showers and it's everybody eats together, everybody sleeps together, you know, like er- lights out at a certain time. And even if you were 18, you were not allowed after, out of the school after like 5pm. So you're all locked in together. Right. Okay. Um, it's different again from British public schools because there's no prefect system. There's no pupils and positions of authority. And also, there is a underclass of employees of the school called surveillant or pion. Pion literally is peon, as in like a pawn on a chessboard. They are underpaid (laughs) 20-somethings who are in charge of pastoral care because teachers don't do that. They don't do any of that sort of looking after the whole pupil. Teachers in France only teach. 
Okay. So we were looked after by them. These are typically like 21, 22 year olds who are waiting for a better job. Um, yeah. Who think that working in a school will be all right. They're mostly very nice. Some of them are very punitive. Right. <laughs> right. The bits that are appealing to me that I'm like, actually, I would have quite like that is like everyone being in together. Because yeah. what I had was just years mostly of loneliness, right? Yeah. <laughs> and sort of like being inside after five o'clock anyway, but just being in my own house on my own, like reading or playing games. <laughs> so kind of having the structure of being around loads of other people does sound quite nice. The really great thing was when we were snowed in, so none of the day pupils could get in and none of us could get out and none of the teachers could get in and none of the catering company's trucks could get in. So we just got to like play in the snow and eat chips for about three days. <laughs> the whole school to ourselves and there only like a handful of adults who were snowed in with us. No lessons, no teachers, like no proper food, but the canteen clearly had like loads of frozen chips. Yeah. So that's yeah, what yeah. we had for every meal for a few days, just played in the that snow does the sound whole time. Great. That was great. That does sound fantastic. That was amazing. <laughs> so I don't think you get any state owned boarding schools in England, do you? Mm, I might be wrong. Some special schools, I think. Okay, right. Well that's different yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Would you want to tell me about um the couple of fictional schools you've been looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So I have had a look at three. Um, one's a, a nostalgia trip for me, and possibly a nostalgia trip for lots of people from various different generations, because there were eight books written across the course of 45 years. <laughs> it's The Worst Witch by Jill Murphy. Sort of arguable source material slash complete blueprint for Harry Potter. You could say that. <laughs> I mean, she didn't make it up either. Like, I've got a little bit of a history of, like, the school story here. The first one was called The Little Female Academy in 1749. Ah. There's school passages in Jane Eyre and in David Copperfield, and then, like, there's Tom Brown's school days from, like, 1857, and then, like, there were loads of them. And generally, they're really set in single-sex private schools. And the boys' stories tend to be about things like sport and loyalty and like academics and competition and stuff like that and the girls school stories tend to be about how to be a good wife yeah how to sew yeah. and how to walk with your back straight and cook and like yeah. make polite conversation and play an instrument but then like in like the 20th century people started having more co-ed schools and so we got more co-ed school stories so Enid Blyton actually was really early on for writing the Naughtiest Girl series, which was set in a co-ed school. Right, okay. And obviously you've got stuff like Harry Potter, like Percy Jackson now. Jill Murphy didn't invent it either, is what I'm saying. No, I'm sure. Like, this is I, a... Yeah, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Central protagonist, got Mildred Hubble, mm -hmm. who's part of a gang of three. So she's with Enid Nightshade and... Maud Spellbody. Oh, they're great witchy names. Uh, they're great. The names in this are perfect. So then we've got, you've got one of the teachers is Miss Hardbroom. 
and she's the sort of strict teacher. The main rival is a girl called Ethel Hallow. And she's a prefect, isn't she? Yes, and is kind of the sort of high-born, snobby mm. kind of... It's sort of almost that Dickens thing, right? Of like, the name gives you so much of what the character is straight yeah. away. So the main areas where this differs from Harry Potter is it's it's an all-girls school. Yeah. It's a bit less glitzy and glamorous. It's a bit more gothic like Mm. I kind of love the aesthetic of it like all the girls wear these like plain black robes and black pointy hats and the capper is they all wear black hobnail boots (laughs) which I love so it's like it's like they're almost like they're all kicking around in new rocks right like it's like this proper school of little 12 year old goth girls yeah similar to Harry Potter in that she's that sort of like not your big brave brazen protagonist she's the worst witch she's a bit useless she's a bit clumsy and she's not the chosen one the girls are there from 12 to 17 so it's five years but each book isn't one year it's like one term yeah so they've got a summer a winter term which is September to January and there's always a Halloween party in the middle that's it and then a a summer term which is February to June or something but yes each book is one of those terms so it's two books for one year right easy get 10 out of that (laughs) sure well exactly but then we look at the publishing dates and I've been looking around and I haven't seen I sort of quite admire this in a way I haven't seen anywhere that explains why there are these huge gaps (laughs) um but let me just she felt like it yeah so the first book was published in 1974 that was The Worst Witch. The Worst Witch Strikes Again then came in in 1980. So that's a six-year gap to Which book quite two. quite a long gap between children's books because the child Short. might have grown yeah, up in ex- the meantime. Exactly. <laughs> so then A Bad Spell for The Worst Witch, book three, comes in 1982. So that's two years. We've it's got, you know, it's fine. Then we have The Worst Witch All at Sea, which is 1993. So that's an 11-year gap. <laughs> Then we have The Worst Witch Saves the Day in 2005, so we have a 12-year gap. Then The Worst Witch The Rescues 2007, so that's two years again. And The Worst Witch and The Wishing Star comes in in 2013. Wow! And then (laughs) first prize for The Worst Witch was in 2018. I mean, I guess, like, partly it's maintained this, like, cultural awareness and position because it's a really great story Mm. but also like everyone has grown up with this book right (laughs) (laughs) and jill murphy is is you know not with us anymore we got to the end of third year (laughs) it's really bizarre it is really weird but it's great and yeah she wouldn't be she wouldn't get away with that now like now there's massive pressure on children's writers to like bring out a book a year but yeah, no, so I love The Worst Witch. It's a really appealing character. Right at the beginning, in the first year, everyone gets given a black kitten, but they've run out of black kittens, so Mildred gets a tabby cat, <laughs> which hates flying. So they all have to, like, train their cat to sit on the back of the broomstick, all nice and prim and proper, and fly around. And she's got this, like, absolutely manic kitten, like, clinging to the back of this broomstick, like, clawing at her. <laughs> You can also tell from the descriptions that like, we've been making a lot of references to Harry Potter with this one, but this is pitched at a younger audience than Harry Potter. Like The cassette tapes I had, I must have been five or six. Yeah. Dead little listening to these. I don't think I ever actually read them. I think mm. I just listened to them, which I think is maybe part of the reason I remember them as well as I yeah. do. 
as a depiction of a school, it doesn't have the gloss of Harry Potter. No. Like, I think it's actively described as looking and feeling like a prison. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like bare, cold stone and, mm. like, dripping walls. And it's got this kind of, like dark gothic feeling to it but in the midst of that this character who is just like bumbling around it's really great all right from there i'll talk about one of my schools i'm going to talk about delderton school in the dragonfly pool by eva ibbotson okay nice so delderton school is based on the real boarding school that eva ibbotson was sent to as a refugee during world war ii Right. The school that she got sent to offered a certain number of scholarships for Jewish children who were fleeing from Europe, and she was one of them. So she went to a school that clearly she really loved, because she has lovingly sort of reproduced it in this book. I'm just going to read you the introduction to it. For Delderton was to be a progressive school, a school where the children would be free to follow their instincts and develop in a natural way. There would be no bullyings or beatings, no competitive sports where one person was ranked above another, no exams, just harmony and self-development in the glorious Devon countryside. A school where the teachers would be chosen for their loving kindness and not their degrees. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And it just carries on like that. It's like really fun. It's interesting to see which elements of, like, the school story she's kept and which elements she's twisted. So, like, a really big thing is that it's a co-ed school. There are boys Mm -hmm. and girls. And they don't have to wear school uniform. And they each get their own bedroom um, rather than a dormitory. Uh, They can sort of go to lessons or not. Mm -hmm. They're allowed pets. But, like, not in the sort of Harry Potter, Mildred Hubble way where it doesn't actually deal with, like, the actual admin of having an animal that poos and eats, you know. They're sort of magical creatures in those. This is, like, there's a pet hutch. Like, there's a little caravan in the grounds, basically. And if your pet fits in the pet hutch, it can go there. (laughs) So, let me read you this other bit. The pet hut was behind the gym, which was a separate building set in the trees. On the wooden steps leading up to it sat a small, very pretty girl talking in French to an enormous white rabbit that drooped down on either side of her slender knees. Inside, the hut was full of cages, from which came the squeals and snuffles of various rabbits and mice and guinea pigs. In one corner, however, there was an unexpected pet, a large, striped snake, which opened one gummy eye as it felt the vibration made by their footsteps. It looked unhealthy and dry. They haven't got much in terms of, like, science education because, like they said, (laughs) teachers were chosen for their loving hearts and not their degrees. But they do loads of arty stuff. They do loads of drama. They do loads of acting and dancing and singing and music and not very much academic learning at all. Nice. Which is interesting. All this, site is really radical and also it's still a fee-paying boarding school. Yeah, it is. It's interesting, isn't it? But that, again, it's that sort of British model that it yeah. seems that all of these fictional schools we have, like I remember growing up reading Harry Potter, thinking of it as this really cool, radical place, because obviously it's a mm. place you go to do magic. And then you get older and you look and you go, it's so conservative. It's, yeah. like, it's, like, it's like we can be adventurous and magical and out there with our school settings as long as it's through this lens of, like, ultra-conservatism. And I think Harry Potter did a lot for, um, you know, like, enrolment in 
boarding schools i think it really romanticized it for a lot of people mm-hmm. and when asked about this jk rowling said oh, i didn't expect to like help the boarding schools so much she mainly set it in a school setting so the parents wouldn't be there and the children can have adventures and i think that is a big reason why lots of these like children's adventure stories are set in a boarding school is it conveniently gets rid of the parents without having to kill them off what i'd like to talk about off the back of that is percy jackson yes so the first percy jackson book I think it's really interesting in terms of that because I think it's okay to say it's fairly early on. They do kill his mama. Right. And then land him in what is essentially a boarding school. It's called Camp Half-Blood. Half-Blood in this sense, meaning half-human, half-god. Yeah. And it's particularly the Greek pantheon, right? It's the Greek pantheon. The whole premise of the book is that the Greek gods are still alive and well and always have been. They live in the seat of power in the Western world. So they lived in Greece in the ancient world because Greece was the seat of power. In the 19th century, they lived in Britain and now they live in New York. Right. So you have this work and class New York kid Mm -hmm. as a protagonist ended up in this school, which is like it's just like across the water from Manhattan, but it's sort of cloaked. So once you're in the valley, it's got its own self-controlling weather and it's like an ancient Greek mini paradise. Wow. You've got sort of uh, pillared halls with no roofs and you've got the forest where they hunt and learn to fight. And you've got like the archery range and the stables and, and then the dorms, which is this horseshoe of different sort of kind of porticoed, pillared houses. And each dorm is for the kids of a particular god. Oh, so the gods have been going around spreading their seed. Well, sure, because it's the Greek gods and that's what they do. That is what they do. Right? That is what they go around. (laughs) So every schoolhouse is like siblings or half-siblings, all the children of one god. Yes. They're all related to each other. Yes. Okay. And for a lot of the kids, they don't know who their parents are. They're unclaimed. They don't know who their parents are until the god that is their parent claims them. Right. So where do they put them? In Hermes' house. <laughs> because he's the god of travellers and messages and yeah. thieves. And, okay. like, people in between things. And... That's really cool. I'm really looking forward to getting to Percy Jackson. But yeah, it's this fascinating thing, then, where it's like... these ha- Where some of them are just empty. And then Hermes' house is, like packed to the rafters like <laughs> Percy is sent there first and it's like here is your three foot squared space on the floor <laughs> if you'd like to put your sleeping bag there that's your bit of this house it's like what about these ones that no one's in well that's not for us right mm, interesting he's this normal working class kid he's not a rich kid there's a lot that i once we do a full episode we'll talk about a lot more as well he's like actively described as having adhd and dyslexia Mm, that's really Um, cool so you have this kind of like collegiate thing like the frat houses and Mm. it's got that feel to it but this completely skewed random it's not like everyone's sitting cozy around a fire it's just a collection of people that don't really know each other. They're yeah. like, all they've got in common is the same dad or the same mum or a lack of knowledge as to who <laughs> their parents are. Right? <laughs> it feels much more kind of rough and ready. So has it got your typical, like, the good kids and the bullies and, like, yeah, of the course, sports of course. competition and the nasty teachers and blah, blah, blah? Yeah. 
all of all of those ingredients. It's just cool. It's like it's it's very self-aware the way it plays with it. Like all of the really aggressive bad kids are in Ares' house because he's, he's the god of war, right? <laughs> so they're all children of the god of war. Yeah, it's it's great. It sounds really great. Yeah. So as a sort of like the book I read the most in preparation for this is actually non-fiction. I think for the first time on the podcast um, is Boy by Roald Dahl. Roald I Dahl wrote two autobiographies. This mm. one is purely an autobiography of his school days. It's all about school and about the particular kind of public schools that a little middle class boy in that time would go to. This is another antidote to the coziness. Of it's so not cozy. So I've picked out a few bits to read. So an English school in those days was purely a money-making enterprise owned by and operated by the headmaster. It suited him, therefore, to feed the little boys as little as possible himself and to encourage the parents in various cunning ways to feed their offspring by parcel post from home. By all means, my dear Mrs. Dahl, do send your boy some little treats now and again, he would say. Perhaps a few oranges and apples once a week. Fruit is very expensive. A nice currant cake, <laughs> a large currant cake, because small boys have large appetites, do they not? Ha ha ha. Yes, yes, as often as you like. More than once a week, if you wish. Of course, you'll be getting plenty of good food here. The best there is, but it never tastes quite the same as home cooking, does it? I'm sure you wouldn't want him to be the only one who doesn't get a lovely parcel from home every week. <laughs> you can see the seeds of Matilda, can't you? Do you remember there's a character in this called the Matron who's the seeds of Miss Trunchbull? It's been so long since I read it, so you'll have to remind me. So, there's a boy who's snoring in the dormitory. That's the context you need. Who's that talking? cried the Matron, bursting in. My own bed was close to the door and I remember looking up at her from my pillow and seeing her standing there silhouetted against the light from the corridor and thinking how truly frightening she looked. It was her enormous bosom that scared me the most. My eyes were riveted to it, and to me it was like a battering ram or the bows of an icebreaker or maybe a couple of highly explosive bombs. <laughs> wow. And then she, like, puts some soap in the mouth of the boy who's snoring as a punishment for snoring. So there's a lot of talk in this book about punishment and corporal punishment in particular. And that's a really big part of public school culture as well. Mm. Technically, it's outlawed everywhere in Britain now. That's fairly recent. It's really recent, yeah, yeah. Because, like, state schools, it was outlawed earlier. But I think it was, like, early 90s mm-hmm. or something, or even late 90s that it got outlawed in boarding schools. Well, and, like... I'm sure some places still do it. Oh, yeah, well, they, they'll just do their own thing. Oh, yeah, they? Exactly. They're like their own little townships. Yeah. It's sort of part of the appeal, right? Is it sort of a little bit like a gated community? Like, I yeah. don't know. I feel like when you get a boarding school in a book, it's not like the pupils are encouraged to go out and be part of the local community, is it? They're very separate. You're not going to be seen down the shops or at the cinema or whatever, you know, not in your school uniform because it would reflect badly on your school. There's this whole thing about, like, the school uniform being an identity and also, like, one that you have to uphold and that you can Mm. let down. One of the things that I go into a comp, you've got lots of things like that. got to appreciate, like, how ingrained this class stuff is in Britain. I don't know because I don't have the point of comparison, but it felt sometimes like the comp 
was even more stringent on trying to emulate those kind of things. Mm. So we had houses, but they didn't really mean anything. And we all wore blazers that were like these polystyrene awful things. And you had to tuck your shirt in and do your tie properly. And there were all these little rules that like getting older and looking back on it, I'm like, that's so borrowed from that sort of boarding school ideology like why do you feel the need to parking after this do you know what I mean yeah I do I do there's an aspirational thing yeah and that really wound me up (laughs) because we had all that like whilst you you know when you're out at lunch you're in your blazer which you're not allowed to not wear you're representing the school and I get all of that but it's a I don't I've never been at a school with a uniform and I find it really weird the uniform thing like I can sort of see a point for if you're taking a school trip and you want to be able to easily as the adult visually identify all the kids that you're in charge of but you could also Mm. do it the way nurseries do and just put them all in high vis when you're on a trip one of the arguments is that for kids who were poorer it stops kids being picked on for how they look but then it just stops you being able to express how you want to look at all. But it's also like these uniforms are often like really classist, really severely gendered, you know, like every year yeah. I feel like I see a protest about like girls not being allowed to wear trousers in certain schools or like it's often really racist as well, like in terms of like how long your hair is allowed to be, what shape your yeah. hair is allowed to be, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, one of the jobs I do is pretending to be a Victorian school teacher. Yes, I was hoping you'd bring this up. <laughs> Learning about the birth of schooling in the Victorian times, mm. it's really interesting because it's sort of a lot of it has changed, but a lot of it really hasn't. Like putting yourself in the mind of the people teaching those classes, you go in the space of 10 years or even just a couple of years from kids go to school if they can afford it, most don't, they work, you don't have to yeah. go to school. But then they make it compulsory. I think it's in 1881 it becomes compulsory. And you'd have class sizes of, like, up to 100 kids. So it's like, oh, my God, everyone has to come. What on earth are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Right, we're going to have to make sure that they sit still and don't move and do what they're told because that's the only way we're going to get through. And there's the authoritarianism. The way of thinking is, like, oh, my God, how do we maintain authority over these kids and stop them overwhelming us yeah. right which you can totally understand yeah but that's still how it operates really the point of making you wear a blazer is we get to make you do something yeah right yeah it's a power thing whenever i do these sessions and it's with kids and we talk about the different punishments and we you know we talk about the cane and we say we don't hit kids anymore and we talk about the dunce cap and we say Yes, because Victorians thought that it was if children were behaving, you should humiliate them and make them feel stupid. Do we do this anymore? Well, we sort of do, <laughs> right? Yeah. I bring this up and you see the teachers sort of shifting abruptly because <laughs> mo- like most individual teachers would agree that you're not to do that. But in a classroom setting, I know I've done it. Yeah. It's part of maintaining your power. Yeah. I'm going to talk about another book now. It's Witch Week by Diana Wynne Jones. It's part of the Creston Nancy series. Mm. Have you read it? Ages and ages and ages. Ago. It's great. It's one of my favourites. It's the schooliest of her books. And right. the conceit is that like it's a timeline that's gone slightly wrong. And it's set in the school that's in the slightly wrong timeline. Creston Nancy says you've got two types of timelines. You've got 
timeline where there's no magic and magic is illegal, you know, like in our timeline we had witch burnings, and you've got the other timeline where magic is common and magic is legal, and this timeline has gone wrong because magic is super common and illegal. So it's set in this school that's for witch orphans, for people whose parents have been burned at the stake as a witch. And it's right. presumably a comprehensive school. There's certainly no fee paying going on. And also there's this sort of like lingering suspicion that any of these children might turn out to be a witch. So the teachers are really suspicious of the children and the children are really horrible to each other. I want to read this really brilliant excerpt. So the book starts with like the private diaries of a bunch of the kids. And this one is from the point of view of a character called Nan Pilgrim, who is a really unpopular kid. I do not know if 2Y is average or not, but this is how they are. They are divided into girls and boys, with an invisible line down the middle of the room, and people only cross that line when teachers make them. Girls are divided into real girls, Teresa Mullet, and imitations, Estelle Green, and me. Boys are divided into real boys, Simon Silverson, brutes, Daniel Smith, and unreal boys, Nirupam Singh, and Charles Morgan, and Brian Wentworth. What makes you a real girl or boy is that no one laughs at you. If you are imitation or unreal, the rules give you the right to exist provided that you do what the real ones or the brutes say. What makes you into me or Charles Morgan is that the rules allow all the girls to be better than me and all the boys to be better than Charles Morgan. They are allowed to cross the invisible line to prove this. Everyone is allowed to cross the invisible line to be nasty to Brian Wentworth. God, that's chilling. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a bit sort of Handmaid's Tale, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Wow. So this sort of, I love this book as well because it shows you that Diana Wynne-Jones hates school. Mm. This is a miserable Mm. school. Mm. Um, It's called Larwood House. And it's a boarding school, presumably, because most of their parents are dead. But it's not a boarding school in that it's posh and nice. It's, like, really deprived. The buildings are really crummy. Everything's falling apart. Everything's really uncomfortable. The levels of bullying are sky high. The teachers all hate being there. I'm going to read a little bit about detention now. One of the characters, Charles Morgan, gets in detention. Mr Wentworth set his cup of coffee carefully down on the master's bench and looked around to see who was doing time. He seemed surprised to see Simon, and not at all surprised to see Charles. Anyone need paper for lines, he said. Charles did. He went up and got most of one X, and was handed a lump of someone's old exam. The exam had only used one side of paper, so Charles supposed it made sense to use the other side for lines. But it did, all the same, seem like a deliberate way of showing people how pointlessly they were wasting time here. Wasting waste paper. And Charles could tell, as Mr Wentworth gave the paper out, that he was in his nastiest and most harrowed mood. Mm, mm. That's it. Those tasks. It's like it's like what I imagine being in the army is like. Yeah. Given loads of tasks to do that are deliberately pointless. And an interesting thing about this one, like to slightly spoil the end of Witch Week, is when it gets folded back into the good timeline, it stops being a boarding school. Like all the bad stuff goes away, including right. the fact that it's a boarding school. It becomes a right, normal, right. comprehensive school. She's like, this is how it should be. No, they shouldn't all be living together, cooped up and doing detentions and bullying each other. They should all be going home to their loving parents at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a great book. It's a really great book about school, especially if you were miserable when you were at school. It's a very cathartic read. Yeah. 
I've got one more book. It's The Wizards of Once by Cressida Cowell. It's the third book in the series. All of our other books that we've done today are kind of older. This is a very recent series, and this has a magical school in it called The Learning Place for Spectacularly Gifted Wizards. They call it that, not because it's really selective, because they'll take anyone, but because it makes parents want to send their children there. <laughs> it's like academies. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great, though. It's got this really great headmistress. This marked the beginning of the happiest, most peaceful time in Wish's small, short life. It wasn't anything like being taught by Madame Dreadlock. For the first time, Wish could practice all the powers she'd spent so many years covering up and smothering. She could never imagine that such a wonderful timetable could exist in the world. There were whole terms on trees, the different kinds, how to recognise them from their leaves, talking to them, tending them, what different woods did with different things. And then there was starcraft and invisibility and transforming into animals and bringing things to life, not to mention flying without wings. There was also word learning and number learning, of course, but they were only a very small part of the timetable. And the teacher who taught them, Madame Mellows, was much more understanding than Madame Dreadlock. She had an entire set of letters and numbers that were all alive and she kept them in boxes. That sounds great. That's like That's a much lovely. more progressive sort of like, here's how education could be. Because if you transfer that across the real world, it's like the sort of forest school ideology yeah. or like the sort of Ken Robinson's TED talk was sort of talking about like, why isn't dance as important as maths, you know? Yeah. It's lovely. This is probably one of my favourite fictional schools. So they do magic, they do not magic. Mostly the teachers are really nice. Until Madame Clairvoy came to the school. She was a new teacher, and from the moment she arrived, things went downhill. Madame Clairvoy taught Starcraft, and she was every bit as mean as Madame Dreadlock, just as horrible in every way. Madame Clairvoy never shouted, but she was sarcastic, and she provoked Tsar's pride. Tsar wasn't very good at Starcraft, and it was one of the lessons in which Bodkin shone. So Madame Clairvoy spent a lot of time comparing Tsar to Bodkin. Even a hop can do this, Tsar, said Madame Clairvoy. So why then can't you? This caused trouble between Tsar and Bodkin, and Tsar acted up in the lesson, showing off and getting into trouble, and then he was sent to Perdita for being disruptive, and Madame Perdita was only halfway understanding. Madame Clairvoy is so mean, stormed Tsar. The world is full of people who are mean, Tsar, said Perdita. Perdita's great. I've got like a couple more bits I want to read you. So at some point in the book, the, the children's parents show up at the school and want to take them away. And then they have like this impromptu parent-teacher meeting. You, Sycorax and Incanzo, have a little explaining to do, said Madame Perdita. And now she sounded very grim indeed. You're too late to catch your children. They and their bodyguard have gone off to see the knuckle of E. Both Sycorax and Incanzo whitened in horror. And why did you let them? gasped Sycorax. But it's like sending them to their death, said Incanzo. Why did you not keep them here? This is a learning place, not a prison, said Perdita, knitting away merrily. Although both you and Sycorax seem very fond of locking your children up. <laughs> mm. You can't blame me for this, growled Incanzo. Have you noticed, said Perdita, that the more you tell Zaroff, the more disobedient he becomes? Incanzo was silent. And as for Wish, I've never met a child with magic as powerful as she has. But she seems to think, Queen Sycorax, that you, her own mother, are ashamed of her, said Perdita. Am I supposed to be proud of a daughter with such cursed magical skills? Stormed Queen Sycorax. She's an embarrassment. How dare you tell us what to do? We know best, for we are the children's parents. 
And how do you think your parenting is going so far? Asked Perdita sweetly. <laughs> so we've we've covered all my books now. That's it. Right. Well, I meant to ask you this before we did the episode, and I didn't. So a no is absolutely fine. Can we talk about your book? Huh. Okay. Hello, this is Nina from the editing booth, dropping in. As you can hear, Matt really surprised me with that question. And what followed was a really lovely and personal discussion of my fiction writing and of my school experiences and some of Matt's school experiences. And I didn't think it was quite right for this episode because it doesn't come with any real recommendations of books that are out there in the world. So what I thought I would do is I'll put out that conversation as a bonus, even the Trunchbull episode, in a couple weeks' time. If you're not interested, no bother. See you again in October. If you are, I'll probably include some excerpts of my work so that you can hear a little bit about what me and Matt are talking about. But anyway, that's where we're stopping for now. So, that was episode 34 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or loved now, as a kid... Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, or you can catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod, or on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember... Kids' books can be for everyone because of all kids. Even, Even the, the trunch, trunch bowl. Bowl.